This is Lehigh Valley Discourse, and you're listening to Wellness Lehigh Valley. I'm your host, Sally Hanlon. Wellness is important to a balanced lifestyle, and more and more, we as humanity are figuring out how certain elements can lead to positive results. From mental health to environment, including all the things that can affect your wellness, I'm happy to invite you into our conversation on ways to improve and think differently about wellness in the Lehigh Valley. And I'm so excited about bringing this program to you because I think it's important on several levels, on the individual level, community level, overall health level. The topic is our healing environment. And over the past two years, we've heard a lot about the importance of nature in helping us to maintain our perspective, our balance, our health. And our Pennsylvania parks in particular have experienced their highest visitor levels ever. In addition to the importance of the fresh air and being outdoors in nature, there's another aspect of what nature provides us, something that has been in practice for at least 5,000 years, if not longer, and that is the use of herbs for both food and medicine. And we're fortunate tonight to have with us David Winston, who is in our backyard in the Lehigh Valley. He's a renowned herbalist. And as a means of disclosure, he was my instructor for herbal medicine training. So, David, welcome this evening. Well, thank you, Sally. It's a pleasure to be with you. And as I was reading your your bio and resume, I was just amazed. David, you've been in training and working with herbal medicines for 53 years. That's correct? Yes, that's correct. (laughs) And I, you know, and I was thinking about when I took the course with you, that was over 16 years ago that I took Mm -hmm. that. Oh, wow. It's amazing. But listeners, David is trained in Chinese, Western, eclectic, Southeastern American herbal traditions. And he has a clinical practice for more than 46 years. He's a consultant to prominent physicians throughout the U.S. and Canada. He's the president of Herbalist and Alchemist, which is an herbal company manufacturing over 250 products. He's the founder and dean of David Winston Center for Herbal Studies, which is the one that I attended for three years, and founder and director of the Herbal Therapeutics Research Library. David, do you have time for yourself? (laughs) Uh, Occasionally. (laughs) Uh, You know, the, the wonderful thing is, is that I found out what my passion was really early in life. And so, you know, not only have I spent not only my entire adult life, but, I mean, going back as a teenager, I found something that I fell in love with, the idea that I could go out into the woods, into the fields, and find plants that were medicinal, edible, or both, just was, to me, an amazing thing. And when I first started doing this, people would say to me, well, what do you do? And I'd look at them and I'd say, I'm an herbalist. And people would kind of look at me with this quizzical, you know, expression going, uh, you mean like spices? <laughs> and then if somebody was really knowledgeable, they might say, well, you mean like potpourri? And i go, no, medicinal plants. And I could see them shaking their head going, poor misguided youth. Why would you want to waste your time doing something that people stopped doing a 100 years ago? And 
fortunately, not only did I fall in love deeply enough with it that I kept doing it, but I was also stubborn enough, even though at that time herbs were no longer part of mainstream America, here we are 53 years later, and I've had incredible opportunities in my training, and now I, you know, as an, as uh, he will call it, say, a senior herbalist, um, <laughs> the world is kind of caught up, and people are interested, and I, again, I have that unique background that I'm able to share, and uh, under normal circumstances, prior to COVID and eventually after, um, you know, I try out, get to travel around the world sharing my passion with people, and it is an amazing thing. Well, and the other thing in your title, you're a registered herbalist, but you're also mm-hmm. an ethnobotanist. Mm-hmm. And an ethnobotanist, as I looked up, is a study of how people of a particular culture and region make use of indigenous native plants. So. Right. Plants provide food, medicine, shelter, etc. So you've done that all over the world in your travels, correct? I have, but mostly with ethnobotany, I've focused on the southeastern United States. Um, I had a uncle and an aunt who were both uh, used herbs and were traditional uh, herbalists. And so they, in a sense... Uh, they didn't start me on my path, but they certainly were a major part of the foundation of my path. And so that was an area where I really had spent a lot of time and focus learning those traditions. But then, as you said, I've also trained in traditional Chinese medicine and Western eclectic medicine. And I also know a bit more than average about, you know, the Ayurvedic tradition and things like that, although I'm not certainly not trained in Ayurveda or Tibetan medicine or Yunani Tib, but there are great herbal traditions throughout the world. But in learning multiple traditions, one of the benefits is that it allows you to wear multiple sets of lenses and not be stuck in seeing things from just one perspective, but being open to seeing things from many ways, which is wonderful because, give you an example, if somebody has an issue, let's say from a traditional Chinese medicine uh, perspective, if somebody came in and they have chronic low back pain, knee pain, ankle pain, uh, lack of libido, urinary leakage, things like that, from a Western perspective, somebody would look at that and go, well, those symptoms have nothing in common. From a Chinese perspective, they all describe a pattern known as deficient kidney yang. So the beauty is, is having multiple ways to see things means that it gives you opportunity to deal with things that having only one view, one perspective, would not allow you to do. Absolutely. And I think that was one of the challenges in your course was understanding that sort of connection to all those pieces when you mm-hmm. have been so exposed to just almost a siloed approach to the body. Right. So has that been sort of your greatest satisfaction at knowing how to pull all this stuff together to help people? What what has been sort of your guiding passion to get you through 53 years? Well, I would actually say one of the things that to me is two things, perhaps. One is that if I was younger, I would have been diagnosed as having ADHD and um, as well as dyslexia. Um, but when I was a child, neither of those diagnoses existed. So I struggled with those things. And so the beauty of it was is that I found myself in an area which just fascinated me. And the idea, as somebody who would have been considered to have ADHD, is that I get bored with things. 
So if this was a finite body of knowledge, I probably would have gotten bored and moved on decades ago. But the reality is, no matter how much you know as an herbalist, there is much more that you don't know. And I would say that's true of any clinician, any practitioner. And so the idea that there's always new things to learn, and literally every single day, as long as I am studying and working with people and teaching, I am learning new things. So that is one thing that, you know, you constantly learn, which means you're constantly able to then take that information and share it with other people. So that that is, to me, incredibly gratifying. The other thing is to be able to help people who have not been able to find help anyplace else. And, you know, it's, I'm not saying that that happens all the time, but one of the things that a lot of people have this idea that there's sort of this battle between herbal medicine and orthodox medicine, or whether, if you want to call it CAM medicine, complementary alternative medicine, not my favorite term, but and nothing could be further than the truth. Because focusing in specifically on herbal medicine, where herbal medicine is strong, actually happens to be where orthodox medicine, Western medicine, tends to be weak, and vice versa. So if somebody comes to, you know, calls me up and says, you know, I was bitten by a tick, I think I have Lyme disease, I'm not going to say take herbal medicine. I'm going to say go to your doctor, get a prescription for doxycycline, and if you catch it early, the chances are it will cure that Lyme disease. On the other hand, if we are dealing with a lot of chronic degenerative disease, whether it be chronic skin conditions, whether it be things like arthralgias, a lot of digestive and GI issues and things like that, herbal medicine is often superior and more effective than what orthodox medicine has to offer. And the best of worlds, of both worlds, is when you have a wonderful physician and a really wonderful herbalist working together, and then you can understand which is more appropriate in any given situation. And there are times where orthodox medicine is absolutely the way to go. It's not one or the other. It's what's most appropriate for this person in this specific situation. So there are times when orthodox medicine is the way to go. There's times when orthodox medicine is the way to go, but herbs can be a useful adjunct. There are times when either could be effective. There are times when herbal medicine is going to be more effective. And one of the beauties of what I've done in my practice, and as you said, I've been in practice for 46 years, is I work with physicians. I love working with physicians. What they do and I do are not the same thing. Their perspective is not the same. The paradigm is not the same, but they complement each other beautifully. Do you ever get the opportunity to teach at medical schools, David, to help introduce them? Frequently. Okay. Because that's the thing that I think I have found to be the the hardest is getting traditional medical profession today, which is Western medicine or orthodox, to understand the power of herbal medicine and working with it. Now, we don't have at this point in the Valley that many integrative practices. Do you see that happening more now, especially because of COVID? Not necessarily because of COVID. I, I don't think COVID has driven a push toward what you, if you want to call it, integrative medicine. Um, although I think long COVID will, because at this point there's not a lot that Orthodox medicine has to offer with long COVID, and the reality is we don't fully understand it at this point. Uh, there is some research coming out that's helping to sort of point in the direction of immune activation and chronic inflammation of the lungs and and things like that. And so I think herbal medicine will actually be very effective in long COVID. And there is even some research suggesting that herbal medicine may have benefit in treating, you know, mild to 
uh, milder cases of COVID as well, relieving symptomology. But again, that's all preliminary research. But what I have seen over the past, and, you know, when I started doing this in the late 1960s, you know, herbal medicine was so far out in left field, actually it wasn't even in the same <laughs> field. It was a different field altogether. And, again, people didn't understand it because we came out of what I call the herbal dark ages. It was a period from the 1930s through the 1970s and early 80s where herbal medicine virtually didn't exist within mainstream American culture. Now, in, in, in various ethnic communities, herbal medicine persisted, and in certain rural areas, herbal medicine persisted. And then in other countries and other cultures throughout Europe, herbal medicine is still part of mainstream medicine, German physicians are trained in herbal medicine as part of their training. Um, and of course, in China, herbal medicine is integrated within the overall medical system, as is acupuncture and moxibustion and other practices within traditional Chinese medicine, or TCM. So, and, and I would also point out that herbal medicine is still significantly practiced in India, uh, Japan, which is called Kampo. Um, so it's not something that you just find in, you know, underdeveloped countries. Uh, herbal medicine is actually a significant part of medical practice in many what are so-called developed countries. Um, but we, we as a culture, pretty much lost that. And I'm very honored to say that I've been a part of that herbal renaissance um, since, the again, the late 1960s. We still have a long way to go. So certain herbs have become popular. So, you know, I don't get those phone calls anymore. What's this herb, Echikonechia? Everybody's heard of echinacea. Everybody's heard of milk thistle and St. John's wort and black cohosh. But the problem is certain herbs become popular. Herbal medicine is not. And mostly what you see is the allopathic use of herbs, meaning this herb's good for this disease. Hippocrates said more than 2,000 years ago, it's more important to know the person that has the disease than the disease the person has. He was right. And so as an herbalist, I don't treat diseases. That's for doctors. I treat people. Okay. And so you could have five people all diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. They're not five rheumatoid arthritis. So from an herbal perspective, you are looking at the whole person. You are looking at not only their the immune dysfunction, uh, all right, uh, in the immune dysregulation, you're looking at digestion. You're looking at circulation. You're looking at whether they are male or female or whatever gender or age. You're looking at the whole person, and the more you can treat the person, the better the results are. So when you see all these sound bites of information, black cohosh is the menopause herb, St. John's wort is the depression herb, salt palmetto is the prostate herb. All I can say for each one of those is wrong, wrong, and wrong. Okay. Can we take a break on that? And we're going to come back but listeners, as you can tell from David and his information and what's happening in the world today, stay tuned. We're talking with David Winston, who's a registered herbalist, ethnobotanist, and an entrepreneur. This is Sally Hanlon for WDIY's Wellness Lehigh Valley. Celtic Fair, a celebration of Celtic music and culture, from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Brittany, and Galicia, to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, 
Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar every Thursday from 7 to 9 here on WDIY. Psst. Did you know your phone is a radio? You can tune into WDIY anywhere on the go with WDIY's phone app. Download for free from the Apple or Google store and turn your phone into your trusted public radio. The easy-to-use app lets you listen to WDIY on your phone, live, and play all your favorite music programs on demand. Download and share the WDIY app with your friends and family and introduce them to many choices, real voices. Welcome back. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Wellness Lehigh Valley with our guest this evening, David Winston, who's a registered herbalist, an ethnobotanist, and an entrepreneur. Before the break, we were talking about how the integration of herbal medicine with today's um, allopathic medicine um, is really about healing the whole person. And David was talking about the different approaches that an herbalist will use. David, could you please explain to our listeners how you're able to look at the whole person and how herbs heal? Well, those are two different questions. So when we talk about looking at the whole person, uh, for instance, in TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, there are what are known as the eight patterns. And so you're looking at whether the the condition, the pattern is internal or external, hot or cold, deficient or excess, yin or yang. And so you're looking at what are called energetics. And the herbal herbs have energetics, meaning they can be heating in their effect on the body, they can be cooling, they can be moistening, they can be drying, they can be stimulating, they can be sedating. And you're looking at the human energetics, and this is also looked at through things like tongue analysis and pulse uh, analysis and things of that nature. And so what you are trying to do is look at the whole person. And again, you're looking at, you're taking quite a bit of time because you're spending time with the person to try to determine what is actually going on and what is the underlying pathophysiology of the condition. So, for instance, let's say, for an example, somebody has some type of chronic skin condition, whether it's an eczema or psoriasis, whatever. These are often based on a pattern what is known as atopy or basically an allergic underlying pattern. And so, uh, if somebody treats these conditions topically, the topical applications may be of some benefit, but they're not going to change the underlying causative issues. And so then you're going to be looking at, okay, are there food sensitivities? Are there nutritional deficiencies? Are there um, environmental uh, allergies or substances in the environment that are causing irritation or inflammation? Um, you know, how is that person's digestion? How is their circulation? And so, again, the more you can treat that whole person, in many cases, the more effective the overall treatment is going to be. And so you're not just looking at focusing in on the skin. And so one of the things I would say about herbal medicine or Chinese medicine or many of the sort of uh, traditional approaches is 
there's not this sense of specialization. My uncle, who was a dentist many years ago, and he was my dentist when I was a child, remember talking to him when I was a teenager and telling him how, you know, um, sugar, uh, you know, he would say, well, yeah, don't eat sugar, it's bad for your teeth. And I would tell him, well, it's, it's not just bad for your teeth, it's, you know, there's a systemic effect. And what you eat plays a huge role on the health of your teeth. And I remember him arguing with me about the fact that, you know, with the exception of, you know, sugar causing potentially growth of bacteria, and dental cavities, it had no effect on the health of the teeth. The irony is, years later, he became a holistic dentist, and we had <laughs> conversations where he agreed, he, saying, you know, yeah, you were absolutely right. And so the idea that, you know, your teeth are separated from the rest of your body, or the skin is separate from the rest of your body, or anything it's all connected, and it's not just connected physically. There's also, of course, that emotional connection. We now know that there is, you know, there is the the gut brain, the enteric brain, which is strongly affected uh, by emotion. We know that, you know, when people talk about having a gut feeling, they think it's just a literary term, but it's not. Um, or when people talk about, you know, uh, stress-induced angina um, or stress-induced hypertension. We know that the mind plays a huge role, whether it's the immune system, whether it's the cardiovascular system, the gastrointestinal tract, whether it's the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. The emotions play a huge role, and I would go even further and say that so does the spirit, Mm-hmm. Uh, the spiritual connection, but then we can take that even further, and then there's the connection to what my uncle called the great life. Some people call it Gaia. You could call it nature. This idea that we are not even really separate entities, that we are a part of something greater than ourselves. And so if we want to really truly have vitality, true health, it's not just about making ourselves well. It's about finding health within ourselves, within our families, within our communities, and within the environment as well. Because if you are breathing in polluted air, there's no way it's not going to have an effect if you, on you. If you are drinking polluted water, if you are drinking water that is full of lead, whether we are talking about Flint, Michigan, or Newark, New Jersey, or Philadelphia, or I'm sure parts of Allentown or Bethlehem or Easton, that is going to have an effect on you. If you have no time in nature, uh, this term was coined about a decade, maybe two decades ago, nature deficit disorder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Studies have clearly shown that spending as little as 20 to 30 minutes twice a week in nature, that could be in a garden, that could be in a park, it could be in woodlands, makes you more resistant to depression and anxiety. And I cannot think of a time, you know, in our lifetimes where more people are not feeling depressed, anxious, or both because this pandemic has been devastating on mental health. The estimates are 30 to 40 percent of the population now is feeling depressed, anxious, or both. And I would say that's probably an undercount. I would agree based on some of the interactions I've seen and how people are just so on edge that they, they just mm-hmm. they react just like a knee-jerk in a situation, yes. and it's not pleasant. <laughs> no. Well, in our, in our two-year class, and you sort of hit it with what you just talked about, 
But you talked about how our communities were sort of sick and that we weren't necessarily bonding with each other again, that there were things that, you know, whether it's in our development of our our housing areas, that played a role in that as well. So even if we're not getting out to nature, what we may be living in might be affecting us, correct? Well, absolutely, and on a, on a, and on so many levels. You know, yes, it's important to be energy efficient. So we now make super uh, uh, insulated homes, which then can cause things like sick building syndrome, where you're not getting enough fresh air into your home, and we have all these things off-gassing from our carpets and our paint and plastics and things like that that certainly can affect our health. So the structure you live in can affect your health. And, of course, if you're living in a very old building, then there's potentially issues of mold and there's potentially issues of, uh, you know, just on a whole range of lead pipes and things like that. So, So the place you live, the actual structure that you live in, or even more problematic is if you do not have a house to live in, I mean, to me, it is a travesty that in the richest country in the world, we still have people who do not have a home or who are experiencing food insecurity. Um, that is that is just, it's just wrong. I, I, I just don't know how else to say it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that we need to find ways to find healthy and uh, good housing for everyone to uh, make it available so people can get healthy nutritious food. So many of our inner cities are food deserts where you basically what's available is very expensive junk food mostly. And of course, you know, a lot of that stuff is filling, but it is certainly not healthy for people to be eating, certainly on a regular basis. Um, I think we need to look at finding ways to strengthen our families. I think we need to find ways to strengthen our communities. And the reality is, you know, when I teach my students, one of the things I teach them is I say to them, one of the worst diseases that you can get as a clinician, whether somebody, and many of my students are medical doctors, naturopathic physicians, acupuncturists, chiropractors, nutritionists, people who are executives who are looking for a new a new path forward for the rest of their life. Um, so my students range from, you know, people who are have no medical background to being very well trained but want to learn about herbal medicine, whether it be for their own use, for their families, for their communities, or as on a clinical practice. So one of the things that I say is I say that one of the worst conditions you can develop as a clinician is what I call hardening of the mind. And hardening of the mind is where you start believing everything you know is true. And I always tell my students that if you want to be a good clinician, you need to maintain an open mind. And that means being open to the possibility that everything you think is true is subject to change. And the problem is we see people on a political level, on a dietary level, and a lifestyle level becoming so hardened into believing what they perceive, what they believe is reality and is the truth. And it may be, but then again, maybe not. And so if you maintain that openness, 
that open-mindedness to learning something new. I started talking in the beginning of the show. I said, you know, it is one of the things that is so, I find so wonderful, is that every day is a new opportunity to learn something, whether it's because I read it in a book, whether it's a new book or in my library, which is approximately 9,000 volumes. Uh, this is all herbal medicine and pharmacy and history of medicine from 1550 to current. You know, I'll pick up a book. I'll see a new study. I'll, you know, talk to somebody, uh, take a class, learn from a patient. And every day there is the opportunity to learn something new. And But that doesn't happen if your mind is closed and you think you know everything about something. And so the reality is, is it's fine to have a viewpoint, but be open to the possibility that you could be wrong or that more information will then alter your viewpoint and change it a little bit. And I think that if we could encourage people to try to keep an open mind, to try to stay out of sort of political and religious tribes and silos and recognize that we as human beings, at least hopefully we're human beings, hopefully we act like them, there is more to learn. There is more to know, and we have more in common than separates us. So finding that common ground to me is vital. We're going to be running out of time very shortly, and I do want you to talk a little bit. You're talking about education, keeping your mind open. Can you talk about your school, what you're offering, what's coming up? Okay, well, my school is the David Winston Center for Herbal Studies, and this upcoming program, which starts in September of 2022, will be the 42nd uh, through 44th year uh, of the program. And our goal is to help people to learn to become clinical herbalists. And for people who are interested, um, they can go to one of my websites. It's herbalstudies.net and get more information. There's also lots of free downloadable information, articles, books, things like that, uh, that people can access. And I would also point out that if people are looking for um, uh, information or clinicians who they can go see who are really well trained. The American Herbalist Guild, which I am a founding member of, has a website where you can look and see if there are clinical herbalists who, again, have a high degree of training in your neighborhood. And hopefully that just gives people some resources. Oh, one last resource, the American Botanical Council in Austin, Texas, is a wonderful research for great clinical and sort of scientific-based information about herbal medicine in general. Terrific. Wow, that's a lot of information. And fortunately for our listeners, this show is then put on the website at WDIY, so you can go back and listen to it and, and get those resources. David, thank you so much for being a part of this show this evening and sharing your wealth of knowledge and information with our WDIY listeners. Again, This was David Winston, who's a registered herbalist, ethnobotanist, and entrepreneur. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. It was a pleasure. And James Johnson, thank you. News and Information Director, appreciate you working the board. And as always, thank you listeners for making time for this conversation. You can also find past episodes and other public affairs programming at WDIY.org and on major podcast platforms. I'm Sally Hamlin, and this is WDIY 88.1 FM. Tune in next Thursday for more Lehigh Valley Discourse, and we'll see you next time on Wellness Lehigh Valley. 